If you would open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64. Today is the first day of Advent, the first Sunday of Advent. And what exactly is Advent? It comes from the Latin word Adventus, which comes, which means a coming or arrival. It comes from the Greek word parousia, which we will look at toward the end of the sermon. In the Western Church, Advent marks the beginning of the liturgical year. This is sort of the beginning of the year. The first thing that happens is Advent, and then we have various things that happen after that. Advent has been seen as a time to prepare to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus. There are four Sundays of Advent that come prior to Christmas. This year, uh, the 24th is the fourth Sunday uh, of Advent. It's also seen as a time for the church to engage in self-examination as we consider the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So there are two Advents because there are two appearings, if you wish, two comings of the Lord Jesus in his birth and in the second coming. But I think it's safe to say that most people, when they say Advent, if they know anything about Advent, they think about Christmas. Um, They think about the first coming of Jesus and almost totally ignore the fact that one day the Lord Jesus will come back. Today, as we consider the first Sunday of Advent, I would like us to begin the season with this principle in mind. Advent begins in the dark. This was the focus of a sermon I preached the first Sunday of Advent four years ago in 2019. And at that time, everything seemed to be going really well. The economy seemed to be humming along and generally speaking, things seemed to be going well. Um, In my sermon notes, which I have from then, I wrote, I can imagine that some might be thinking, Damon, I don't like this sermon. I don't like all this talk about Advent beginning in darkness. But then came the pandemic and all that it brought with it. Not only the loss of life, but in many ways the loss of freedom the church being told what it could and could not do. People isolated, the number of suicides skyrocketed. I think now, in a real sense, to say that Advent begins in the dark is a lot easier to accept than it was four years ago. That Advent begins in the dark, I think, is seen clearly in our text which, by the way, was our prayer of confession, which uh, I don't know if you noticed, but we used this only three Sundays ago. We usually don't repeat so, uh, so quickly. Um, but our text is found in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 5 through 9. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, By the way, the ESV has, in our sins, we have been a long time. You were angry. How then can we be saved? 
All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sin forever. O look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. There is almost a despair in what Isaiah writes here as God's people are in exile. They are in darkness. But this isn't simply something that happened during the exile when Israel and then Judah had fallen into sin. We hear it as well in the Psalms uh, from Psalm 80, which I read the first two verses last Sunday when we were talking about gratitude, the opening verses. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, awaken your might, come and save us. But then it turns dark. Restore us, O Lord, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. There have been throughout human history dark times for God's people. For those who were taken into exile, it was, in fact, a dark time. And not simply because they're not at the homeland anymore, that they are in exile in Babylon, um, but because it seemed that the promise of God had come to an end, that God was no longer going to keep his promise. We might say, rather cavalierly, well, those if they just hang on a bit, they would know that, in fact, Jesus is coming, that the Messiah is coming. Um, we know because he has come and we rejoice and we sang that today Emmanuel has come we rejoice Uh, John in 1 John is quite clear that the Messiah has come that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked on or looked at and our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. John's like, the Messiah has come. The time of waiting is over. And yet I find it striking that just a few months, perhaps even weeks or days before Jesus begins his ministry, we hear his cousin, John the Baptist, saying, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. A rather bleak and harsh statement, which we sort of come to expect from John the Baptist. Um, I think one of the problems the church faces today, and perhaps has throughout history, is that 
we think that we are or we should be immune to difficulties, that somehow we should not experience what we have read in Isaiah 64 and Psalm 80 and elsewhere. Really? Is that, is that what we think? John is equally clear that God is light. What he wrote in the prologue to his Gospels, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Some might say to John, well, John, if that is true, if the light has come into the world, why is there so much darkness? Why is there evil in the world today? In the language of his first epistle, 1 John, why are there false teachers? Why are there antichrists if the light has come into the world? If God truly has come into the world in Jesus Christ, why do things remain as they are? Why do so many terrible things happen? Where is God? I think these, in fact, are appropriate questions for Advent as we wait for the second coming. I would suggest to you that while many people enjoy the Advent season because they're looking ahead to Christmas, that the Advent season is, in fact, not for the faint of heart. We hear this in Isaiah's words, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In our sins, we have been a long time. As one writer put it, the authentically hopeful Christian or Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. I think the whole business of Christmas, we have forgotten that Christ came into the world because the world is lost and is broken. Again, the hard questions of Advent. If, in fact, Jesus has come into the world, he is the light of the world, why do so many terrible things happen? Where is God? I think that the church tries to avoid these questions by looking back at Christmas. Instead of looking at where we are right now and wondering when the Lord Jesus is going to come back, um, you know, rather than wondering where is he, when is he coming back, will he make all things right, and if so, when is that going to happen? Um, I don't know that we necessarily ask these questions. I think we may at different stations in, in our life, but we are not the only Christians in the world right now, okay? And so our lives may have some difficulties, but we have brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering. And I think if anyone could ask the question, where is God? If he has come into the world to save the world, why are we suffering? When I talked about this four years ago, the statistics said that 11 Christians are killed every day simply for their faith in Jesus Christ. That 245 million Christians face extreme persecution. This, these are only those that we know about. Um, 
This is from 2019, that the unprecedented persecution facing Christians around the world is the greatest best-kept secret with the shameful silence of the West, which turns a blind eye as if such persecution does not exist. The bottom line is our brothers and sisters are being killed for the faith that we share with them. That was four years ago. In 2022, an advocacy group called Open Doors said that there are at least 360 million Christians who have experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. It was 245, and now it's 360. 20 million more than it was in 2021. This group also estimated that the number of Christians killed for their faith rose to 5,898, that's 16 a day in 2022, up from 4,761 or Thirteen a day in 2021. And the world does nothing. But that's not the issue, is it? What is God doing about it? Where is God? When will the Lord Jesus return? Advent begins in the darkness. Peter wrote in his second epistle, First of all, you must understand that in these last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. I'm not sure that we need scoffers to ask the question, where is this coming he promised? After all, Isaiah asked, O Lord, will you hold back yourself? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Advent begins in darkness. We want to know, in fact, when he will return. We live in the time between the two advents. There is a tension. There should be a tension, at least. An atmosphere at times of crisis. Where is God? I would suggest to you that until Jesus returns, he is hidden among us. And it is this hiddenness that gives Advent its special character. Paul wrote to the Colossians, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So far, so good right? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Blaise Pascal, a famous French philosopher, said, every religion which does not affirm that God is hidden is not true. And then he goes on to quote from Isaiah 45. Truly you are God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. History and recent history is filled with stories that would make one question, where is God? 
This was something that I mentioned back in 2019. In 1987, a Christian missionary couple and their children were hacked to death in Zimbabwe. As one writer put it, here were young missionary couples, teenage children, a toddler and an infant, tied up in their own homes and hacked to death with axes. They were the only farmers in the whole area who did not have elaborate fences, floodlights, security systems, and watchdogs. They had no fences at all. God was their protection. Where was he? Where was his zeal and his might? As Isaiah said, truly you are a God who hides himself. Advent begins in darkness. And it is this hiddenness that gives Advent its special character. Our life, the church's life, is hidden in Christ until he comes again, which explains why so much of what we do appears to be failure. Just as his life appeared to be a failure when he died on the cross. We live between the two Advents. Jesus has come, yes, we affirm that, but Jesus will come again. We do not know the day or the hour. The tension at times can almost be unbearable. He promised to come back, and where is he? We hear Jesus giving a parable. This, we studied this in Mark, in Mark 13. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. For if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. When I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. In Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is on a headlong collision with the powers of darkness. And it is at the point of impact where Christians are to take their stand. And that's why it hurts. It is the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness. And it's why the, ch the church takes such a beating. Why at least last year, 16 Christians were killed every day for their faith. John wrote to his readers in 1 John, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. And he wrote that 19 centuries ago. We may stand in a dark place, but we are to stand and we are to watch. One of the things I think we need to recognize that the world doesn't, and I think the church oftentimes fails to recognize, is that progress is a deception. I don't need to give you examples from the news to illustrate that. Somehow we think we're getting better and better every day, that the human race is progressing. 
the technological prog progress that has happened, yes, but I think it has blinded us to the, for us to imagine that humanity itself has progressed. Flannery O'Connor wrote, we lost our innocence in the fall and our, and our turn to it is through redemption, which was brought about by Christ's death and by our slow participation in it. Sentimentality is a skipping of this process in its concrete reality and an early arrival at a mock state of innocence which strongly suggests its opposite. Instead of embracing the reality of the fall and redemption in Christ, we become somewhat sentimental. And Christmas is nothing, I would say, at least in this society, if not a time of sentimentality. This blindness has turned us away from the double truth that Christ has come and he will return. The Lord has come. The Lord will come again. Advent begins in darkness, but God is light. As I said, when I spoke on this four years ago, I could imagine people saying, enough, Damon. You know, um, so I was telling Tom before the service, I Someone once told me, accused me, that I could take any hymn and turn it into a dirge. Uh, that somehow, this melancholy... But I think we need to recognize the brokenness of the world. We would rather focus on Christmas than the second coming. Because we know that happened. Okay, so we, that's, that's a certainty. The second coming, was, it's been two millennia, and it hasn't happened yet. We live in what W.H. Auden calls the time being between the first advent and the second. And we may, in fact, live and stand in a dark place. We live between the way things are and the way that they ought to be, or the way that we imagine they ought to be. So again, we would rather focus on Christmas and forget that Advent begins in darkness. In some traditions, in religious traditions, um, they did not decorate the house for Christmas until Christmas Eve. We have a Christmas tree here. It's been here for a week already. Uh, that was not their practice. They would wait until Christmas Eve to decorate the house. And the daughter asked her mom, why do we do this? Everybody else has their Christmas tree up and all the decorations. Why do we wait till Christmas Eve? And the mother answered, I think Christmas should come in a burst. Christ has come. But we, I think, maybe out of sentimentality, we want to sort of stretch it out and we want to forget the darkness that was there beforehand. I don't know if you noticed, we sang three Advent hymns, three Christmas hymns today and if I'm not mistaken these are the only hymns that we sing that have the word hell in it which seems strange a Christmas song an Advent song talking about hell and the rest of the year we blithely go along and we have wonderful hymns but they don't talk about hell the story is told of a woman whose husband died in Pan Am Flight 103, you may remember, that blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland. Uh, a terrorist bomb was put on and it blew up and everyone died. 
She prayed for him the night before he left, before he flew, that God would keep him safe. After his death, she said that her view of God changed. I don't dislike him. I'm not mad at him. I'm afraid of him. I think this is the tension of Advent, the hiddenness of God. As one writer put it, God hides God's self. This paradox pervades the Bible. Strange and offensive as it seems, God's hiding of himself is in order to make himself known. When, God, when God's presence is taken for granted, it is no longer real presence. We recently uh, finished our study in the book of James. And in chapter 5, there are two verses, verses 7 and 8. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Um, Again, this is 1900 years ago or more. What is James telling his readers? He uses the word parousia in Greek for which the Latin is Adventus. And it is used in two different ways in the New Testament. One is to speak of an arrival, and that's usually what most people think of, that the Lord is going to come. He will arrive. He will appear. But it also speaks of presence. So in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived. But then in Philippians 2, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, parousia, not arrival, but my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The word parousia is used of the second coming, yes, but it also speaks of Christ's presence with us now. Jesus spoke more about the second coming than we find in the epistles. As we saw in Mark 13, even he did not know, and this is something beyond our comprehension, even he did not know when the time would be of his return. And that when he returned, there would in fact be a separation, the sheep and the goats, there would be judgment. There would be the taking away of God's people to be with our Father forever. But those who are unbelievers, it will be a time of judgment. But in the meantime, those who are not believers are rather cynical and dismiss the whole idea. But we who are God's people, it should be a cause for hope. Cause us to endure, to stand, to prepare. But it's interesting that James doesn't talk about any of this in his letter. Um, He doesn't give a long explanation or description what he tells us is simply is the Lord is coming. He assumes that his readers know this. They've heard the apostles teaching in Jerusalem. Some of them may have even heard Jesus himself in his teaching. Uh, When we went through James, I pointed this out, that James is not trying to inform his readers. They already know this. He is reminding them and calling them to live in that light. So they are, in fact, to be comforted, those who are suffering, 
They are to be comforted and have joyful expectation. But also they are to stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. I think when we think of God's faithfulness, oftentimes we look to the past. That he chose us, he sent his son, he gave us salvation daily and nightly. He cares for us and provides for us body, soul, and uh, mind. His presence is with us every day. But as James sees it, that when the Lord returns, we will have a full understanding of his presence, of his mercy, of his compassion. As the King James puts it, his tender mercy. James also wants to remind his readers that he will return as judge. In John, 1 John 3, uh, the idea of appearing appears six different times. But interestingly enough, John speaks of the second coming before he refers to the incarnation, the first coming of the Lord Jesus. Um, the fact that Jesus has come is the basis for our hope that he will one day return as well. We live between the two appearances. Again, a writer tells us what the church holds on to by grace through faith is two things. We hold on to memory and we hold on to hope. We remember the great things that God has done for us and we hold on to a hope that amounts to a certainty because God has made promises and it is an inalienable part of God's nature that God keeps his promises. One writer has suggested during much of the 20th century, and I would say now in the 21st century, the second coming of Christ was considered in the mainline churches to be an obsolete, if not downright embarrassing topic for preaching. But the reality is we live in Advent right now, the time before he returns, the time in between. We are here we are God's people we are already his people our salvation has begun we live in the time of already but not yet I've mentioned this before but in our hymnal we have a grand total of two Advent hymns we sang one of them today O Come O Come Emmanuel the other one we sing throughout the year O Come O Come Emmanuel we only sing during Advent and Uh, The other one is, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's two verses, rather short. Listen as I read the lyrics. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Second verse, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. What do we hear in this hymn? 
Why is it that we sing it throughout the year? It's because it speaks not only of his first coming, but of his second coming as well, and his presence with us right now. Rule in all our hearts alone. You are the king now in our lives. You've been born to set your people free. Raise us up to thy glorious throne. One writer has said, fear is not a Christian habit of mine. As children, we learn to say, yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. We learn that after the resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Christ is a gracious, abiding presence in all reality, and in him, history will finally be resolved. But on this Sunday, this first Sunday of Advent, we are reminded, we learn that Advent begins in darkness. I mentioned earlier the story of the woman whose husband died on Pan Am Flight 103, that her view of God changed. I don't dislike him. I'm not mad at him. I'm afraid of him. This is the tension of Advent, the hiddenness of God. In Luke chapter 2, we read, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Advent begins in darkness. Do not be afraid. Let's pray together. Our Father, I suspect that oftentimes we take your grace for granted, our salvation for granted, because we have forgotten the darkness out of which you called us. And so when we see the darkness around us in our world, great evil, terrible things happening, we wonder where you are. But you are with us. In a way that goes beyond our understanding, you are hidden in us. And when we look at the life of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, do we expect that our lives will be better than his? That we will live lives without difficulties? But forget the difficulties, that we will live lives in which your promises have not yet been fulfilled. That there's a tension, like a child says to a parent, but you promised. And we wonder where is the fulfilling of your promises? You have kept many of your promises, but the promise of the Lord's return has not yet been fulfilled. And we wait in tension, sometimes almost with a sense of crisis. But you are with us. 
The parousia is not simply a return. You are present with us now. Jesus promised where two or three are gathered in his name, he would be in their midst. But we wonder if he is in fact in our midst, then why are there still difficulties? That hiddenness throws us. We don't quite understand it. Help us to trust you. To know that you are one who can only keep promises. It is by your nature that you fulfill the promises that you have made. And so as we begin this Advent season, may we be reminded the brokenness of the world, the fallenness of the world. But the Lord Jesus has come. He has come, has brought light into the world, has brought us salvation. And one day he will return and make all things right. And by your grace, may we hold on to that promise. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we walk through the world this week. We pray in a particular way for Lonnie and the scans that she will have tomorrow. For Dr. Brown, that you would give her wisdom. For Aju, as she waits for the result of her scans. Uh, For Manuando, as he waits for the results of his test. Help us to remember that you are already there. You have prepared the way. Though your way oftentimes is hidden to us. Thank you for loving us. We love you because you first loved us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.